Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read briefly from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. This first portion of the chapter, it'll provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage this morning, which is Psalm 64. So in a moment, we'll turn over to Psalm 64, but first... Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. She poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. But me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Amen. Jesus and his enemies have come to a rare place of agreement. Jesus and his enemies have just agreed at the beginning of this chapter that it's time for Jesus to die. Jesus has determined that in two days is Passover and then he will be delivered up to be crucified. Simultaneously, the chief priests, scribes, and elders have likewise gathered together with their disciples and decided it's time to kill Jesus. There is one degree of variability. Timing. They don't want to do it during the feast because they fear an uproar. Jesus, however, has just declared that it will happen during the feast. And then Matthew tells us why this one point of disagreement. Judas. Judas will supply that tricky and secretive method by which they can arrest him and kill him during the feast without an uproar. What leaps from their plan to Judas's plan? Mary. Jesus is there at Bethany. He has informed his disciples the hour of his death is drawing now nigh. 
and she comes out with the alabaster flask with very expensive fragrant oil and she does this amazing thing. She takes the flask, she walks up to Jesus, she smashes it on the floor and she spills it all over his feet and she anoints him. The whole room fills with the fragrance. And Jesus says, she has done a good work. She has acknowledged the reality and inevitability of his death. And unlike Judas, has responded correctly with worship. Here's the truth. Jesus has died for sinners. Here's the question. What are you going to do about it? Jesus has died for sinners. Will you worship him? Or will you join those who have crucified him? Will you seek to betray him? With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 64. Psalm 64 is our psalm of the month. A fitting psalm to end our year. Psalm 64, the final psalm of the month for this year. Psalm 64, here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, the psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword, and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words, that they might shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him, and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say... Who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of the Lord. They shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. Amen and amen. My older brother was a very good wrestler, much better than I was. And he would often appear with his name in the newspaper as having won his wrestling matches or being ranked in New York State as one of the the best wrestlers in his weight class. His nickname was the Octopus because he could wrap people up and tie them in knots and twist them around. It drove my mom insane because she would stand in the stands and scream, he's not supposed to bend that way. And sure enough, one day he was wrestling one of the top wrestlers in New York State and he was being bent away. He's not supposed to be bent. And my mom was losing it, fearful that her son was about to snap in half. His shoulders are twisting and twisting toward the mat and we're thinking, 
he's about to lose this match. And that's the end of the season. It's, it's the final tournament. It's the championship. And sure enough, to the breaking of our hearts, the whistle blows and the mat is slapped. And they go to the center of the circle and Aaron's hand is raised. And we think, what? Somehow, though we could not have seen it, while he was being twisted impossibly toward the mat, he had actually twisted his opponent and pinned him. You see, often in life, what we see is not reality. You see, for us as Christians, what looks like sin and sorrow heaping up unto death is really salvation. Victory. The reality of the resurrection in Jesus Christ, the good news for us, the gospel for us in Psalm 64 as we come to the end of our year is that whatever you have seen happen this year, here is the truth. Jesus is winning. Jesus' death defeats our enemies. Jesus' death has defeated our enemies. And so our friends, my friends, let's pray into joy. Tonight when we get together at 6 p.m., let's pray our way into joy. When you gather for your midweeks this Wednesday, pray your way into joy. When you meet with your prayer partners, pray your way into joy. Let me show you how to do this. Look at the psalm. Notice in verses 1 and 2, David has given a psalm to the chief musician. Something that is out of his own personal feelings. Something that is out of his own personal experience. It's, It's his psalm, the psalm of David. But it is to the chief musician. It belongs to the church. It belongs to those who sing with the Messiah. The chief musician is Christ. He is the choir director. We are the choir. He makes melody in our hearts that we might sing as David teaches us to sing. And in verse 1 and 2, David is teaching us to sing a prayer for God's attention. Notice in verse 1, David says... Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. The footnote will say complaint. Other translations will say complaint. He says, secondly, in verse 2, hide me from secret plots. In between the hearing and the hiding, David requests for the preservation of his life from the fear of the enemy. What David is surveying here is the internal state of his being. In the first line, David's complaint is really troubled thoughts. Lord, hear the voice of my troubled thoughts. David has a complaint, a concern. Something is disturbing his mind. His thoughts are disrupted by the state of affairs. And so he talks. His mind is heavy laden with disturbing complaining ideas. He's meditating, but it's not a good one. It's a negative one. And so he speaks. He prays. Hear the voice of my meditation, my complaint, my disturbing thoughts. But secondly, he speaks of the state of his heart. Preserve my life from the fear of my enemy. When he says preserve his life, he doesn't literally mean here prolong my days. Rather, he speaks of that Fear of the enemy that paralyzes us and leaves us with less than a real life. 
Lord, preserve me from that fear of my enemy that would rob me of the vitality of my existence. David then thirdly says, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. By this, David means those rebellions, that's there in verse 2, that he cannot perceive, of which he is unaware. He knows they exist, but he doesn't know who's involved. He doesn't know what they're planning to do or when they're planning to do it. In other words, we can sum up verses 1 and 2 this way. David is dealing with all the disturbed thoughts and all the life-killing fears of the unknown. Of what he can't see. Of what he can't measure. Of what he can't evaluate. David feels the crippling and disabling effect of being human. This is something that happened to Jesus Christ as well. I read Matthew 26 on purpose. Its symmetry to this text is clear. That Jesus was aware and had his thoughts filled with the concerns of his enemies who were plotting against him who were secretly coming together to plot against him. In fact, Matthew 26 is just the final and most climatic expression of it. There are nearly a half a dozen times that Matthew says, and they plotted to kill Jesus. It's almost a refrain, a chorus that appears throughout the gospel. And they plotted to kill Jesus. And they plotted to kill Jesus. He spent much of his earthly ministry aware that his enemies intended to rob him of life. He didn't know when. He didn't know how. And so he lives with this fear and the weight of these thoughts. And my friends, it is no different for us, is it not? How many of us are living with complaints inside our head, confused and burdened thoughts? Where our mind is a world Have you ever put your head on the pillow only to realize there would be no sleep tonight? As the wheels go crazy and the thoughts parade past. What about the fear? That fear that steals us of life. That that fear that freezes us in motion and we can't go forward, we can't go back. I've, I've told you before of my childhood fear of heights. I don't know why I call it childhood. I'm still terrified. But it was more prominent as a child because I had four brothers who would humiliate me endlessly if I let them know I was afraid of heights. So when they said, let's go climb Mohonk, I said, okay. And halfway up the cliff, I realized that I'm afraid of heights. And I froze, hanging under the side of the rock. Thankfully, dad came too, and he got me out of that. Friends, we have a paralyzing fear that we are capable of. They won't let us move forward and it won't let us go back. And there's an answer to it. Hear my voice and hide me. Preserve me. It is prayer. Where do we turn when our minds are drowning in a sea of troubles? To prayer. Where do we turn when our hearts are heavy and paralyzed by the fear of our enemy. Prayer. Where do we go 
when we see the unseen, when we worry about what lies ahead, we pray. Or at least that's what David would train us to do. That's what Jesus would have us do. We pray. And in the course of prayer, David discovers two important truths about his enemies. And he shares them with us in this psalm. The first is that his enemy's main weapon is their words. Thanks, you know. So we went over this in the adult Bible class already. Just see the recording from Revelation. The the main weapon of our enemies is actually their words. There is far more harm in what they say than in what they do. In the end, the truth of this lies in the fact that Christ is king and rules over the church. So whatever they do ends up being a blessing for the kingdom. But what they say can damage the citizens of the kingdom greatly. David does not subscribe to the childhood motto that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. David disagrees. In verses 3 and 4, he says that their tongues are sharpened like a sword. By tongue and sword, he means they can cut deep. Their tongues are able to penetrate his flesh and wound him within. He says, secondly, that they bend their bows to shoot their arrows, which he explains are, in fact, their bitter words. David is a great warrior who is not afraid of giants. He is a great warrior who is not afraid of lions and bears. He is a great warrior who will take down 200 Philistines just to get a bride price for a princess. Double what was requested. He's not afraid of swords. He's not afraid of arrows. But he compares them to the weapons of the mouth. Our words. Why are words so frightening to David when swords and arrows are not? Verse 4, they shoot them in secret at the blameless. He can't see the words. If I see the arrows, I put up my shield. If I see the sword, I parry it with my sword. Of course, David is probably right-handed, so he parries it with his right hand. But not words. How do I block words I cannot see coming? Bitter words, hard words, harsh and cruel words that wound deep. There's no shield for that, is there? There's no no safeguard for that. I can't see them coming. Out of the secret, they leap from the lips and I didn't know they were there. But it's too late. They've reached my ears. They've reached my mind. They've reached my heart. Suddenly, they shoot at him and they do not fear there's a boldness to their words, a cruelty to their words, and it cuts, them, cuts him deep inside. This is why we pray, friends. This is why we must train ourselves to respond to the fear and the troubled thoughts of our enemies with prayer. Because there's no prevention. We cannot possibly get through life preventing ourselves from being wounded by those around us. It can't be done. If you're going to love someone, you're going to be hurt. If you're going to have a relationship with someone, you're going to be wounded. To enter into friendship, to enter into fellowship with another, means to accept the sins and wounds of that other person. There is no possible way to live with them and not have their words 
pierce you, cut you. And so we need an antidote to the poison. There's no way to see it coming. There's no way to stop it. Rather, we need the antidote, which is prayer. David perceives that the main problem is the words of his enemies piercing him deep, unseen and secretly. And so he needs prayer. And so we need prayer. This too was the experience of our Savior, was it not? I mean, do you guys remember that line when he first came out into his public ministry? And all his neighbors at Nazareth said, isn't that Joseph's son? Now that could be best case scenario. That could be a bunch of well-meaning neighbors saying, oh, we know that guy. He's not the son of God. He's the son of Joseph. He's, he's the next door neighbor. We, our kids played with him when he was growing up. Best case scenario. Worst case scenario, they're being sarcastic. Oh, that's Joseph's son. That's the illegitimate child of Mary who doesn't even know who his dad is. He knows what it's like to have words tear through the ribcage and shatter the heart. He knows what it's like to have the leaders of his nation, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, come up to him and say, we've already made our decision. You're a Samaritan possessed by a demon. Your power has come from Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Jesus knows what it's like to have words wound him. He knows what it's like to hang naked on a cross with his blood oozing down and puddling around his cross. As they say, if you are the son of God, come down. As they say to him, you saved others, can you save yourself? He knows what it's like to pass through a courtyard early in the morning and to look upon his beloved disciple Peter who just spent all night saying, I don't know him. He knows what it's like to be wounded by words. He knows what it's like to be pierced to the depths of his being by cruel words. And so he prays. And so we learn to respond to these words in prayer. But secondly, David says his enemies have this other problem. Their words have a source. A seemingly inexhaustible fountain of evil. Verses 5 and 6, they encourage themselves in an evil matter. They are not only persistent and powerful in their speech, they are because they have a fellowship that it brings it about. There's a camaraderie among them. Their evil matter is particularly effective in reaching David because they've encouraged each other to do it. They've built up together more than they could do by themselves. They talk of laying snares secretly, saying, who will see them? They are confident in their work. They are bold and assertive. They will snare and lay snares, thinking, no one's going to see it. It's going to work out perfectly. In fact, they say in verse 6, as they devise their iniquities, we have perfected a shrewd scheme. They come to the decision that what they have come together to make, what they have counseled and encouraged one another to do is perfect. It cannot fail. David is trapped. The enemies are confident. David concludes in verse 6, both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. 
He doesn't mean profound. He doesn't mean insightful. He means depraved. That the cesspool within the soul goes on and on and on. We we call this the doctrine of total depravity. That his enemies have a depth, a wellspring of sin and of iniquity that seems to be inexhaustible. They labor long and hard for three and a half years to come up with the perfect scheme by which to destroy the king. For David, this speaks perhaps to the time of Absalom, who for two years would go about the city of Jerusalem undermining the justice system of David. Oh, you can't get justice from him, but if I were king... For two years would go around riding behind chariots with 50 men in front of him with his long flowing hair in the breeze, signaling his wealth and his power, his beauty. He's the true king of Judah and Israel, who then very sinisterly goes to David and says, I made a promise to God that I would offer him a sacrifice in Hebron, you know, where kings like you are crowned. And he slips away to Hebron to launch his rebellion. But how much more that perfected scheme we read of in Matthew 26. Where the Pharisee scribes and and chief priests and elders all come together in order to make a plan. Let's take him. Let's take him by trickery, it says in Matthew 26. And let's kill him. But we can't do it during the feast. We need to wait. We need the opportune time. Judas comes to the temple door late one night. And Judas says, all right, I know a place. It'll be real quiet. No one will be there. He loves to go there every night during Passover. It'll just be him and his disciples. I know when he'll be there. I know how long he'll be there. And they have the perfect scheme. For 30 pieces of silver, the Son of God will be sold to death. They have perfected the scheme. For this reason, we need to turn to prayer because we won't outsmart this world sinners. We won't outsmart or outstrengthen or overpower this world's depravity. We're not meant to. Jesus destroyed the kingdom of darkness with his death. It's an awful thing I'm inviting you to today. To join Jesus in praying Psalm 64. It's an invitation to lose. And in losing, gain everything. It's an invitation to recognize the good news of Jesus Christ. That they had a perfect scheme. And they did achieve exactly what they set out to achieve. They crucified the Lord of glory. The plan was perfect. With one little detail missing. God. They forgot God. And this is the reason that our wounds and our heartache and our grief needs to bring us to prayer. Bring us to our knees. So we don't forget God. Because so often you and I are dealing with the business of this life, whether our jobs or our commute or our family or our friends or our church, as if they weren't gods. 
As if they belonged to us. As if we were the first and prime mover in each of these things. And we lose sight of the reality that this is Jesus' sermon. This is Jesus' supper. These are Jesus' people. And he's going to do good work. He's going to do really good work. And it's prayer that brings God into focus. It's prayer that brings us out of the confusing thoughts and into the face of God. It's prayer that brings us out of the weight of our fears and into the freedom of the face of God. It's prayer that gets us out of self-reliance and on to divine dependence. Because David has done this in his prayer, because David has humbled himself beneath the weight of these problems in prayer, he can put in there verse 7. But God. This is when it gets really good. You guys ready for this? R.C. Sproul, throughout his earthly ministry, argued that the two most important words in all of the Bible are the first two in verse 7. But God. My mind is full of confusing and conflicting thoughts. But God. My heart is heavy with hurts and with wounds and with fear. My life is shrinking and crippled and disabled. But God. I want to quit and I'm full of despair and hopelessness. But God. I am a sinner. Filled with iniquity and unrighteousness. But God. It's the answer to every problem. But we're only able to hear it and see it when we pray. Prayer is what moves the mind to perceive it. The heart to receive it. That moves us to say, but God. But God will shoot with it at them in arrow. Suddenly, they shall be wounded. Do remember that David is operating in a metaphor. When he says arrow, he doesn't mean literal shaft of wood or stone. He means, as he said in the previous one, verse 3, words. God will launch at them words, and they will be wounded by that word. Indeed, it's an arrow singular, because God only shoots one word. John chapter 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. It is December after all. And the Word from God was shot into the world, and suddenly they were wounded. Christ is the Word of God that has come into the world. He is the arrow from the bow of God that has come into the world and wounded all our enemies. He has come with speed and with fury. He has come and caused them to stumble over their own tongue. They with their words went after Him. And with their schemes they plotted to bring Him down and they crucified Him. Not knowing that in this act they were saving sinners. Not knowing that in this act there was freedom for the people of God. They stumbled over their own tongue, and all who see them fled away. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, was betrayed by his disciples, Judas. Abandoned by the other eleven, the only ones who would stick with him are the women. 
Those who served him, fed him, clothed him. All who see them shall flee away. His enemies will recede on that third day. The disciples, do you guys see the picture? So on Friday when he's arrested, his, his disciples flee him. But on Sunday when he shows up, all his enemies flee. And his disciples gather to him. Jesus is the word from the Father. He is the word that he speaks into our troubled minds. He is the word that he speaks into our fear-filled hearts. He is the word that he sends to us. What is the answer? The answer is Jesus. He is the word that he has sent. But God sent Jesus. It's the answer to every problem. And so two things now should happen. Two things now should come of this. First in verse 9, all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider His doing. We know from our series in Proverbs that there's an intentional symmetry on David's part here. They shall fear, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They shall wisely consider His doing, for fear is the end of wisdom. And thus in between they shall declare the work of God. His doing. All humanity shall be invested into this responsibility of perceiving the works and doings of God in this world and shall necessarily bring forth this confession. There was this slogan that went around in the 1990s Bow now or bow later, but bow you will. This is the reality that David promises. All those who labor in rebellion in this life will eventually be filled with fear. Not a reverence. Not a devotional subservience willingly giving themselves. But a terror. A terror of His wrath and of His judgment. All men shall fear. Some in love and some in hate. But all men shall fear. And all shall declare the work of God. All, according to Philippians chapter 2, will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will do it in love and some will do it in hate, but all will say it. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they will wisely consider His doing. Friends, we have such hope in our evangelistic effort that there is a Christ who will bring about the fear of the Lord in the hearts of men. There is an arrow from God, His name is Jesus, who causes them to perceive they're not alone in the world. God is here. He's doing something. He's working in us. We have these conversations, I hope you have a bunch of them here in a few minutes when we quit, where we talk about our lives. And we tell stories from the week. And we, and we lay bare What's going on in our lives? The question is, is when we tell those stories, are we awake and alert to the fact that God is doing those things? Or do we forget He's the main character in the story? But then secondly, lastly, most importantly, the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in Him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. There's a universal response to this fact. But God sent Jesus into the world. There's a universal response. It's fear. When you see it, when you feel it, it's fear. 
But there's another response as well. Joy. It's joy. Friends, where do we find joy? Where do we learn to be glad? It says that there is gladness. You guys see the prepositional phrase? You know what prepositions are for, right? You guys studied grammar? Words matter. How we use them matter. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord. Where? In the Lord. What did David ask for at the beginning of the psalm? Hide me. Give me a place to get into where I am safe. Where is that place? It's not Jerusalem. It's not this beautiful building. It's not the family. It's Christ. To hide in the fellowship of the Lord. To hide in the friendship of the Trinity. To trust in Him. And to say, his, my life is His. All the upright in heart, then glory. We rejoice in the glory that it is to know God and to be known by God. To have Him perceive my intimate thought. When is it that I realize and recognize this fellowship and friendship with God? I can give you two places where you can turn. In which your heart can feel. Indeed, your hands can hold the reality of this friendship. One is right here, yes? Tim and Tom are about to walk around. They're going to hand you bread. They're going to hand you a cup. And if you think this is about carbohydrates and sugars, please don't partake. It is only a meal for those who have perceived the spiritual reality. But God sent Christ. But Christ's death defeated our enemies. This is a supper to be celebrating victory in the death of Jesus. The other one is, you guys knew this is where this is going, right? We pray. We pray. Because when we pray, as the Puritans were fond of saying, we are exercising the muscle that moves the arm of omnipotence. Not a great line. My childhood pastor would use that in like every other sermon. That's why I have it memorized. He loved that line. When we pray, we enter into fellowship with our Father in the name of the Son through the intercession of the Holy Spirit. When we pray, we awaken gladness in our hearts. We awaken glory in our faces. Don't believe me? Try this. Spend this week praying. And then next Sunday, tell me that prayer doesn't bring joy. Shall we set a limit on it? Do we, do we want to take this rest? Yes. 20 minutes a day? 30 minutes a day? Now, if you're anything like I am, to even attempt half of that, you're going to have to look at your calendar and cancel something. Because most of us don't go through life with 30 minutes unassigned. But if you are going to meet, you know, with me or with one another, would you give one of us up for Jesus? To meet with Him? To pray your way into joy. To pray your way through the problems within you, the problems about you, 
into the solution, which is Jesus. He is there. He is at work. How do I awaken to him and see him? I pray. Dear friends, Jesus' death destroys our enemies. Pray your way into joy. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for the sweet joy that you have given us in Jesus. To know that the heavens are open to us while we traffic here on earth among many tragedies and much trouble. We give you thanks, O God, that in Jesus we have a heavenly Father who stands ready and willing and able to hear us, receive us, and help us. We thank you that we have a place in which to hide, a refuge in your fellowship and friendship in Christ. And we thank you that the space between us, that that we must leap from here to there, is not crossed by us, but by you. That you send your Son into this world after us to draw us into fellowship with you. We thank you, our Father, for the riches of this gospel and ask that they would this day nourish our faith and lead us to pray that we might have joy. Father, give us this week joy in our Jesus. For this we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, that's Psalm 